this morning, I want us to continue this week and Lord willing next week as well. Um, the theme of love, we've been looking at 1 Corinthians 13 and we've gone through that chapter verse by verse. But now I want to kind of back up and give you the big picture again of what's going on in this book. Because it's, it's what we need as well. If you read all of chapter 12 and 13 together as a unit, maybe 12, 13 and 14... Hopefully you would get this emphasis that God wants the church to love the church. And walking in love, 1 Corinthians 13, was to get the church that was dividing, the church that was fighting, the church that was hurting, to love the church. And you've got this, these rumbles and problems in chapter 12 and chapter 13 is the answer, the end of chapter 12, verse 31, says, Earnestly, I earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I show you a still more excellent way. And then the whole chapter about love comes about. Uh, Paul wanted to get them beyond gifts to something more excellent, more worthy, and that was love. And I want us to get, get us there too. So let's just deal with that theme for a minute. I, I thought even as we just sang that song, Amazing Love, how can it be that Christ my King would die for me? And that's been the emphasis in the American church all of my life, that if there was nobody else on earth, I've been told Christ would die for me, the individual. And though that's true, Christ does come for individuals. His love is particular. The overwhelming majority of Scripture is, no, Christ is King of kings, Lord of lords, and He dies for the church. And I want us to think about backing up from that individualism to see the corporate necessity of love, that we need to love the church is that individualism that divides us and causes us to fight and hurt one another instead of seeing what Paul said, I want to show you something more excellent, and that's a need to love the church, uh, especially on a Sunday after Saturday football. Some of you come together with great school spirit, don't you, depending on whether or not your team won or not. And I love school spirit. I love seeing it developed here I love in our school, I love seeing it other places because you understand what that is. It's a group coming together, rallying together, loving one another. I want to ask you to think about do you love the church that way? I often have said, I want to develop a new generation of churchmen. And what that means is you're pro church, it means you care about the church. I loved it that it was a few years back, uh, a number of churches in our community got caught up in the I Love My Church movement. You remember it because there were lots of t-shirts and pins and printed and wherever you went, you'd see on the back of somebody's shirt, I love my, I love my church. I thought that is a cool movement um, because it's developing a community spirit. It's developing churchmen, men and women who are pro-church. They love the church. They care about the church. And that's what we need to have as well. 
The way to get that, I think, is by simply adopting and engaging in the same priorities as Christ. And I want to show you that real quickly. Look at Acts chapter 20, verse 28, and then we'll also look at Matthew 16. Acts 20, verse 28. And here's the Apostle Paul, his last words to the Ephesian elders, says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. That's the church, the people of God that they were responsible for. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, and here's the phrase I want you to catch, the priority of Christ. Shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. There you have an emphasis that we sometimes meet. Who did Christ die for? The church. Who did he purchase with his blood? The church. And as a shepherd of this church, I wake up each day to pray for you. I wake up especially on Sunday and I, I say, God, I'm overwhelmed with the burden of a church. Not just an individual here or an individual there. But what are the burdens of the church? And Lord, what are your passions for this church and God often brings me back here and says, remember, David, I care about the church much more than you. I purchased the church with my own blood. That's God's passion, is to care about the church. So if we're divided, if we're fighting, if we're hurting, if we're not growing, it matters to God because he has purchased us with his blood. Now look at Matthew 16, verse 18. Matthew 16, verse 18. And here Christ is speaking to Peter, primarily the representative of the 12 disciples. He makes this statement. Matthew 16, verse 18. He says, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So much in that passage. I, God's in charge, he's the authority, will build, he's the builder, the constructor, my, he's the owner of the church. He owns the church, he builds the church, he's passionate about the church. As you disciples go forth, he says, I want you to know I will be in your midst to build a church which I now own because I am purchasing her with my own blood. Christ is very passionate about his church. So when you put that into 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, I hope you see Christ pleading through Paul saying, quit fighting about who's greater, who's lesser, who's got the better gifts or the lesser gifts. Quit dividing, quit hurting one another, love one another, you are my church. Love the church, don't hurt the church, don't divide the church, build up the church, 
grow the church. And the way to do that is through love. Love one another as I have loved you. Now, get it even deeper how important that is. The reason I want to get even deeper and, and, and emphasize the importance is because during this year, for the first time in my life, I have seen time after time people relegate the church to a non-essential entity. And that's biblically ignorant and ludicrous. And yet so many, even in the church, have adopted that view that the church is really not essential. And we've just read two verses that really exalt the church, the only body Christ has purchased with his blood, the only one he has promised to own and build and not let anything come against it. And we've seen evidence of that over and over. But let me give you some theology. Some Spurgeon would love it. Heady theology. Uh, Packer would love it. Let's look at Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. Here's the theology. The essential nature of the church. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. And he, that's God the Father, is the he, put all things in subjection under his feet. Now we're picking up the story, so I'm filling it in for you. Under his feet, that's Christ's feet. So again, God the Father is taking all things and putting it underneath the authority of Christ, his feet. And he gave him, Christ, as head. It would make sense if he has all authority. He is now the head. And he is. He gave him as head over all things. Notice where who he gives the authority of, over all things. Who he gives that head to. Gives him to the church. So the head of the church is Christ. Christ has been given to us. As the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. Given to the church. To lead the church. Catch the description of verse 23, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Just reading that, I'm overwhelmed because as I thought about it again this morning, I thought, God, this is unbelievable that you would choose me an insignificant small town preacher to proclaim to you folks the unfathomable riches of Christ because what I just read for you is literally unfathomable that Christ has been given to his church they have, and he calls the church the fullness of his body. Do you catch that? Do you get that? It's just, poof. How could I possibly be the fullness of Christ in the world? 
I get that I can be called his body. I get that I can be called the bride of Christ. I get that he can be my head. But how is he in the church filling up all things? Did you catch that? Oh. Who fills all in all. God is filling the town of Anderson, South Carolina through the church. His body, the fullness of Him. He's filling the world through the church. His body, the fullness of Him. It's like the richness of that, the unfathomable nature of that, just goes over our head so many times, and we don't... Think about the significance of that. If Christ is in the church, He is. If He's the head, He is. If we are His body, then every time we, the church, are together, subdued to His reign under Him, He is filling the world through His church. The presence of God is in our midst and goes out from us to the world. How could the presence and the fullness of God ever be considered non-essential? It can't be. Because it is the, the, the core of history. It's filling the world. It's filling all in all through the church. And it's rare that you find a history professor who gets this and teaches it this way. But this is the word of God. The unfathomable riches of Christ. Let me try to get you in to this world a little more. I, I love being a part of the education of the next generation. And I spent a lot of my life engaged in that even desiring when we came here to Anderson back in 88 to, to start a Christian school and be a part of that and been a part of that framework. Well, in, in that, I've, I've spent time thinking about it, praying about it, reading on it. Did you know that of the first 108 colleges in America, of the first 108, 106 of them were started by the church. So America owes its educational foundation to the church. And the church was educating the American society in its original morality and ethics and government and structure. It's the church that had that influence filling this land with much of Christ. And we still have plenty of illustrations of seeing this over and over and over again. Think about schools in this town. Who started Oakwood Christian School? The church. Who started Temple Christian Academy? The church. Who started Anderson Christian School? The church. Who started New Covenant School? The church. Who started Anderson University? The church. And the church is filling this land with the glory and the power and the compassion 
of Christ. Think of the untold number of students gone, going through those institutions. Now, wherever they are, standing for Christ and His glory and His passion and His power and His love. It's because of the church. And it's not just the church. Think of any town you've ever been in. Think about the hospitals. How many hospitals are there in America? And who started them? And you know, you go to town after town after town and find a hospital that was started by a Protestant or a Catholic church. And you think about the healing and the compassion that's flowing through those places started by Christ, who is head of his church, the fullness of his body, filling all in all. Anmed, Anderson Hospital in 1904, a lady by the name of Jenny Gilmer was having her second born and about to die in childbirth when she cries out in prayer. So I assume she believes in God. I don't know much of her faith. But she cries out and says, God, if you will save me through this childbirth, I will make sure there is a hospital established in Anderson. Well, she survives. And she, through her influence, through her prayers and the prayers of her partners, Anderson County Hospital Association was started. $25,000 was raised. And the first two-story, 25-bed hospital was established. In 1908, that one grew on to be what's now AnMed, the largest independent not-for-profit hospital in the state. But it goes back to the church who prays for a ministry to people who are hurting and suffering. And when you think about ministries of people who are hurting and suffering, uh, how about Haven of Rest? Who started Haven of Rest back in the 60s? The church. How many countless number of people have been uh, rescued, redeemed, and released through the power and love of Christ through that ministry? Who started Anderson Crisis Care? The church. Who started um, Calvary Home for Children? Our church. Who started so many, uh, many uh, Salvation Army, you just, the church. You just start going through. And not only the church start things, the church is one of the most tremendous influences in the sustaining of so many of the ministries. Inner city ministries, rural ministries. Who visits the orphans? The church. Who visits the widows? The church. Who goes into the prison and disciples folks and offers worship services? It's the church. And the church is constantly ministering to thousands and thousands and thousands. And people want to relegate the church to non-essential? It's ludicrous. Because without the church... Life as we know it doesn't exist. It's through the church that God is filling the world with the love and values that is absolutely essential for us to exist as the society we are. And it's no different across our land. I just sat down and thought about what I knew of Anderson. But you can take 
those analogies to every county in America. And you see the church and the church and the church starting this, 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 influencing all of the world. That's our God at work. Uh, in pandemic times, the church is more essential than ever. It's always been essential. Ephesians 1, and 23. Again, let me read it. Because he put all things in subjection under Christ's feet, gave Christ to be head of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. There was a lady in the news this week. They were having a women's march. I think it was up in New York. And uh, somehow it made the news that I read. Approached one lady and said, you've got this women's rights poster and it says women should have the right for an abortion. And she asked the lady, she says, don't you realize that 50% of all abortions are women? And the lady says, who gives a vulgar term? And I thought to myself, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And what God does, doesn't matter. That's the kind of person who says the church is not essential. The fool, who is the one who thinks that the work of God in the world is non-essential. So foolish. Not the testimony of Scripture and should certainly not be the testimony of the church. The church, you know, is called the salt of the earth. I thought about it. I have never once heard anybody get up from the dinner table and proclaim, you know, that was the best salt I ever ate. We don't think about it, do we? But the salt is one of those ingredients that gives the meal flavor. How many of you would keep eating food if it had no flavor? We would not be as big as we are without flavor. We want flavor. We want it to taste good. And because it tastes good, we want more and more. And God says, the church is the salt of the earth doesn't necessarily get a lot of credit, but the church is flavoring all of society. The church is the light of the world and brings the world out of darkness to the glory, to the power, to the compassion of Christ. The church is absolutely essential, and Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 13, so you can't divide it. You can't hurt it. You can't fight it. You must love it. You must sustain it. Because that's who you are. You are the church. I want to share with you several passages of Scripture that just indicate without doubt Christ's own view of the essential nature of the church. And then I want to look at some that we would hold to as well. Christ's ongoing loving ministry of his church is essential. Let me show you a few passages. Matthew 25, 35 and 36. Matthew 25. This is a passage that talks about how Christ 
is tied to activities of the church that are good. And I want to show you some that are bad. Acts, uh, excuse me, Matthew 25, 35 through 36. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. Well, you know the story. It goes on, and the people who are the audience say, Lord, when did we see you naked? When did we see you hungry? Explain this to us. And he says, every time you did it to one of mine, every time you did it to the church, you did it to me. And you see this essential connection. He's the head of the body. We are the body. If you do it to the body, you do it for the head of the body. That's his point. Your ministry to the body of Christ is essential because it's ministry to Christ. So if you're indifferent to the body, you're indifferent to Christ. If you ignore the body, you ignore Christ. If you give love to the body, he says you give love to Christ. Now let me show you the other side of the coin. Look at Acts chapter 9. The Apostle Paul's testimony. Acts chapter 9. Verse 3 and 4. And he was traveling and it happened that he was approaching Damascus. This is Paul. And suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting, catch the pronoun, me? And Paul says, or Saul said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. You see the strength of that? What is Christ's view of the church? You mess with my church? You're messing with me? Do you not get that? He says, I see every good deed that is done for the church. I see every persecution and bad deed that comes to the church. Whatever is done for the church, good or bad, is how we treat Christ. Christ takes the church personally. It's not a non-essential. It's not a category. He relegates over to the side and says, you know, not that important really. No, he, he, this is one of those biggies to him. Do something nice for the church? I'll, I'll write that down. Do something bad to the church? I'm going to write that down. If you keep doing I'm coming for you. Because the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. I've already determined to thwart Satan and his host to, to, to stop anybody from letting me fill the earth. Remember, I've got all authority in heaven and on earth. I am going to fill all and all through the church. So don't mess with my church. Be good to it. Being bad is not going to go well for you. 
Let me show you another passage. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 15 and 16. The intimacy with which Christ views this head-body relationship. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15. It says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them a member them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the one the two shall become one flesh. Wow. Again, think about that the intimacy there. He says, "Church, what are you doing if you engage in acts of immorality?" Do you not know that you are bringing the head, your head, down to that level of intimacy? You are joining your immorality to Christ. How can the Holy Christ be that intimate with immorality? This should never be. Do you get that? That if you shake hands with me, you shake hands with Christ because I'm his body. If you go to bed with me, you go to bed with Christ, is what Paul is saying here. He says it's that intimate. It's that personal. It's that real. It's that essential that we be Christ's holy bride, that we be his church, that we get how serious this is, that he is that united when he says, are you united with Christ? Yes, intimately. So much so that he feels every drink of water I receive and every sin I commit. That there's an intimacy that he is greatly aware of. Which is why he is necessary to fill us with his holiness and his passions, his word, his truth. One more passage to see the essential nature in which Christ shows his being in the world through the church. Look at Matthew 10, verse 40 through 42, another popular passage. Matthew 10, verse 40. It says, He who receives you receives me. He who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink. Truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. Never will forget, somebody asked me in a... A Bible study, does God give rewards? So you obviously don't understand the church. God says in the Hebrews that he who comes to God must first believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. Yes, he gives rewards. Yes, he rewards even the person who gives a drink of cold water to his church. Because he cares about sustaining his church, his body. It matters greatly to him. 
No institution outlives the church. No institution is promised to prevail against the gates of hell except the church. No institution makes it into heaven except the church. No institution has been in every generation since the beginning of time except the church of Christ. Why? Because the church is that institution that is the body of Christ through which he fills all in all. It's God's church. It cannot be dismantled. It cannot be relegated to a category of non-essential. So then, knowing that, how do we, godly men and women, boys and girls, how do we respond to that knowledge of God being the head of His church, His presence being in the church, Him using the church to fill all in all? Well, I think a great response is in the Great Commission, Matthew 28. So let's look there as we think about how do we respond to this institution known as the church. And I think we come up with three non-negotiables in this passage that we must be committed to because of it. Look at Matthew 28. And these non-negotiables are in... Our mission statement as a church, our mission statement is wholehearted love for God and man. We want to wholeheartedly, with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, love God. comes back to love and love one another, love our neighbor as ourself, the two greatest commandments. And then through the greatest commandments, we are given this commission in Matthew 28, beginning at verse 16 to the end. And this commission involves three things. It involves exhortation the worship of God, it involves evangelism, the embracing and including of all the people that God is bringing into his church, and then it involves edification, the discipling, the, the making of followers and devoted followers of Christ. Let's see those things. First of all, exaltation, verse 16 uh, through 18. The eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him. There it is. Exalts. They stopped to exalt him. Some were doubtful. Why were they doubtful? Well, this is the first time since the resurrection for some of these folks that Christ died, was crucified. Was he really the Messiah? And then he's resurrected. And after he's resurrected, he comes back to them. And they said, whoa, what's, what's going on here? Well, the ones who got it said, well, he's Lord of death and hell, of, of, of life and resurrection. He's the resurrection of life. He's got all authority, obviously, over all of these things. Let's bow and worship. They got it. He even declares that what they got was true. Verse 18, Jesus came up and he spoke to them saying all authority has been so if you had doubts all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth and we saw that in Ephesians 1 you see that in Daniel 7 that when Christ ascended he ascended to God's throne and God the ancient of days gave to Christ all authority in heaven and on earth and since he is the one who has it all it is behooves us to bow down and worship. And that's what they do. 
And we see, see that's the priority. When, when you in, are in the presence of the one who has all authority in heaven and in earth, the one who gave you birth, the one who will give you your death, but the one who has power to give you a resurrection and a glorified existence for eternity, that is the one you must bow down and worship. It, it, it doesn't make sense to do any other activity than that. And so we consider that a non-negotiable. We, as the people of God, must recognize that the head of the church is Christ. And we must Worship Him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We must worship Him. We must exalt Him. So we come together on the first day of every week for that purpose. To say, thank you, Jesus, for another week. How can we serve you? We want to serve you. We want to love you. How will you fill the world this week through us, the church? And that's our passion, is to acknowledge that Christ is our head, that we are here to minister to Him and to worship Him. And that's what we do. 1 Corinthians, again, Paul is making this application in chapter 12, verse 7. He says, each one of you is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. We've all been given gifts from the Spirit, but we're all given these gifts to build up one another. And as we build up one another, we're exalting Christ. The church is being built. He wants to build His church. And as we are involved in building His church, He is pleased. He's intimately pleased. He says, this is essential. This is why I came to earth, to purchase a church, to build a church. And the activity of the church starts with worship. Acknowledging its head and living for its head. Well, that's what we do. It's non-negotiable. It's something we must do. And it's something we must do corporately. It's not done alone. You don't get sanctified alone. Because you need the gifts of everybody. We don't worship alone. We worship with the body of Christ. We've got to break from that individualism, that We've been trained in, in America, and see, no, there's a community element that we can't separate ourselves from. We are always to be together. Now, there's times when we are restricted from being together. I get that. There are people who can't be with us this morning. They are restricted, physically restricted. Um, we've got people, brothers and sisters in prison that are restricted from being with us. We get that. We've got people who are bedridden. They're restricted from being with us. We get that. There are other people who are just deceived from being with us. And we get that. But the priority of the church is to come together on the first day of every week and to exalt Christ. It's an essential part of who we are. That's what we do. That's who we are. And what we do and who we are is essential. Christ says it was, says, says so. Not the world. Obviously, the world doesn't think so. The world doesn't even want to talk about God, His priorities. But we understand it's essential. Second, non-negotiable for us, is evangelism. Verse 19, He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Key to what's going on here is this phrase, 
all the nations, literally every ethnic group, all ethnicities. Why? Because up until this time, the church was only one group, one national group, Jewish group. And Jesus says, now with all authority in heaven and on earth, I'm building my church. I've told you that. And I want you to go and now open the doors of the church to every ethnic group. We will not be a national club. We are going to be international in scope. And that's why when people come through our doors, we're known as the church that wants to welcome and embrace and love. Because it doesn't matter your nationality. It doesn't matter your group. God wants every group to be a part of His group, the church. And so we, we embrace that thoroughly as we seek to share the story of Christ's love with others. We start with our family, our kids. We don't lose, want to lose a one. We move to each other's families. We move to our neighborhood. We move to the world. Sometimes God certainly brings the world to us. And that's His point here. I'm building my church. And I'm building it through every nation, tribe, and tongue. And then the third non-negotiable is teaching ministry. Verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I command you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. We call it discipleship. It's, it's not a, an option. We don't consider it an option. It's, it's an obligation. It's, it's an essential. It's a non-negotiable. We must know God's commands. He's our authority. We must know what He wants, what, is, what matters to Him, what He cares about. We must follow Him. We must sit at His feet and learn. And God says, you can't do that alone because I've given this command to the church and I've given gifts, various gifts to the church. And you have to come together to share those gifts and to hear that teaching and to grow as a church. That's who Christ is building. And he's doing it through a discipleship ministry, which is why every church seeks to, local church, seeks to establish some sort of discipleship ministry. It's a non-negotiable. We must teach what our head commands. Or we wouldn't be his body. The fullness that's filling the world, filling all in all. Uh, so, what are we doing every week? We're doing what is essential. Uh, think about where the church is today. It's easier to think about where the church is not. You know, they're... Uh, go looking for the church in Israel. Will you find it? Church is there. How about in Sudan? Church is there. Jordan? Church is there. Egypt? The church is there. Australia, the church is there. New Zealand, the church is there. Wherever you go, the church is there. In every nation, tribe, and tongue. The church is there. This book, cover to cover, as of July of 2020, has been translated in over 700 different languages. I don't know of any book that's ever been translated more than 25, 25 different languages. This book has been translated 
in over 700 languages, cover to cover. Why? Because there are 5 billion people who want to hear their God speak in their mother tongue. That's the church in every nation, tribe, and tongue. And the fact that they have that hunger for that word shows you where Christ is filling all in all. All through the land. Simple question. Do you care? Do you care about the church? Who cares about the church? I do. I care about the church of Christ. I love the church of Christ. I will die for the church of Christ. Christ has already purchased the church of Christ with his own blood. Do we care about the church? Practically, can you take the Lord's Supper at home alone? The answer is no. Not rightly. Not biblically. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 29 says, For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself. If he does not judge the body, the body of Christ, the church, if he does not judge the body rightly. And he goes on to talk about the judgment that comes when the church comes together and tries to be individualistic. He says, when you take the Lord's Supper, you're not only supposed to think about you, but you're thinking about you in relationship to the body. There's one bread, one Christ for the whole body. There's one covenant purchased in blood for, for the whole body. And you must think about yourself in relationship to the body, being in the body, that you're not divided, you're not hurting, but you're loving the body of Christ. It is a community sacrament that God has given to constantly be reminding us of our need for the church corporately. It's not something we can isolate back away from and say, oh, it's okay. Won't matter. Christ won't care. I don't see that in Scripture. I see that as a deception of the evil one to try to divide and hurt and harm the very people that are the body of Christ that we love and care about and the ones God is working through to fill the world with all in all. Let's pray together. Father, there's so much in your word on the essential nature of the church. And when we just take a snapshot, we begin to see how unfathomable your work through the church, that it's global. It has reached every nation, 
tribe, and tongue. That you build your church. That no government, no tyrant has ever been able to destroy the church. Even this week, our brothers and sisters in China were told they could not print hymns. They could not print Christian literature. They're under a regime that's trying to silence the significance of the church. Many will try. Many will harm us greatly. But Lord, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, may we be those God exalters who say, I may get sick, I may die, but I will worship the Lord my God. Let the fire be increased hotter. Let me live for the glory and the majesty of God who is building this church. Father, help us to see again the significance of loving the church and caring for her. Let us see, Lord, that how there's nothing that we would rather give to, give our first fruits to, than the church. There's nothing that we would rather spend our time with than the church. There's nothing that our talents were designed for more than the church. Father, let us see your passion for the next generation and its place in your church. Forgive us, Lord, for the times we've ignored, we've been indifferent, we've harmed by inactivity the church. Lord, raise up again in America, in this land. We see it, the need for it now during this election cycle more than ever. America needs the church. Revive us. Turn us through repentance. Bring us back to understanding why we really are here. For your praise and for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.